Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Dr. Kenny Linden. Kenny is an environmental and animal historian of Mongolia and Inner Asia. Kenny's already been on the podcast to talk about pastoralist parallels in the Disney Plus Star Wars series Andor, which you haven't listened to already. I highly recommend that you do. But today we'll be talking about Kenny's academic research, which focuses on the transformation of livestock herding in socialist Mongolia. So thank you so much, Kenny, for joining me again. Thank you. Uh, It's wonderful to be here again. So first, I think it would be good if you could provide a little context for listeners about the kind of specific historical and geographical area of your research, uh, especially because I think socialist Mongolia is maybe a bit of a black hole in most people's knowledge. I think when we talk about nomadism, uh, pastoralism in Mongolia, people are probably if they are familiar um, with the region, probably are more familiar with the Middle Ages and the Mongol Empire. Um, but socialist Mongolia specifically, I think, is lesser known, certainly. Um, and I think also um, your research really delves into the differences uh, between socialism in Mongolia and socialism in the USSR. And I think those specific nuances are also probably not known to people as well. So could you talk a little bit about this just sort of big picture context of what you're researching? Sure, uh, I'd love to. Um, So while I study um, all periods of Mongolian history, my main focus and my dissertation's focus is on the socialist period. Um, The Mongolian People's Republic uh, was actually the second socialist country in the world. Um, It uh, they had a uh, revolution in 1921 with the help of the Soviets um, and uh, officially became a Mongolian People's Republic in 1924 after the um, previous uh, um, theocratic ruler died. So it's worth noting that today's independent Mongolia um, is the one part, other than perhaps Taiwan, that uh, managed to break away from the Qing Empire and stay independent after the rise of the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China. Um, So in 1911, uh, Mongolia declared independence under a theocratic ruler from uh, the Qing Empire. And um, it was uh, back and forth and... um, Uh, invaded uh, first by Chinese and then white Russian forces um, from uh, 1919 to 1921. And then in 1921, with the help of the Soviet Union, Mongolian revolutionaries uh, took back control of their country. um, And uh, and then, as I said, in 24, they officially became the second world's second socialist state. Um, they continued um, as part of the socialist bloc, closely aligned with the Soviet Union, but never joining it um, until the end of socialism in 1990 uh, with a number of democratic um, protests. Um, 
the Soviet Union, people debate over whether or not Mongolia should be at this time should be understood as a colony, as a um, as a, a satellite state. Or um, I prefer to see it closer as a um, um, client state, uh, if only to distinguish between the settler colonialism that Buryatia and Inner Mongolia, two other modern um, Mongolian uh, lands uh, to the north, that's now part of the Russian Federation, previous part of the Soviet Union, and Inner Mongolia, which is part of the People's Republic of China, um, they uh, saw both during socialism and the post-socialist era heavy uh, settler colonialism of non-Mongol people and heavy um, forced sedentarization campaigns. And we can compare this to other hurting areas like Kazakhstan. Um, But... In Mongolia, while the um, policies and um, so forth were heavily influenced and sometimes directed by the Soviet Union, ultimately its leaders were Mongolian, even if those leaders were sometimes killed by the Soviet Union for not following orders. Um, But this meant that the way that herding was uh, made socialist was in a very different manner than in the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, because ultimately it was the sons of herders and people who still had, or herders themselves, and people who still had um, connections to the countryside who made these policies um, to uh, create a new socialist state and a new socialist style of herding, which ultimately, um, as I explore in my dissertation, melded some traditional with new uh, modern elements to create a new uh, form of herding and human animal and environmental relations that still had continuity with the past um, while also being a clear distinct period um, that um, is a great example of how the um, ways that nomads um, interacted with animals in the environment and nomadized have to be understood not as one monolithic, um, timeless um, form of life, but as being divided into distinct periods. Um, And that's one of my goals with my dissertation is to show, you know, this is very distinct from what became before and what came after. consciously so by the leaders who wanted to um, create a new socialist state. And so what are some of the features of that sort of socialist pastoralism? And, you know, and I guess, how did leaders kind of reconcile socialism with pastoralism? Because I think a narrative that we're more maybe familiar with from the Soviet Union is that those things are not reconcilable, you know, in the Soviet context, uh, past, they tried very hard to eliminate pastoralism as much as possible um, in order to kind of build the new homogenous modern Soviet state, right? So what did that look like in Mongolia? Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, so uh, the first attempt to uh, transform the herding economy occurred from 1929 to 1932 at the same time as collectivization in the Soviet Union. Now, collectivization uh, is was based on the Russian agrarian model in which a uh, the land would be confiscated, herders, uh, herders, farmers. <laughs> you can see where, you know, my true... Uh, uh, mind lies, but um, farmers would uh, become part of the collective, own, in theory, own and work the land um, collectively, and then receive um, uh, salaries for this. Um, there's also state farms that make things a bit more complicated, but we don't really need to get into that. Um, in Mongolia, 
Um, land was already mm, owned by the government. So it was more about collectivizing the herds. This meant that, um, and especially a big part of collectivization is disenfranchising the wealthy. Um, in collectivization in the Soviet Union, these were generally known as kulaks, uh, rich Russian peasants. Um, in uh, Mongolian, they got um, became known as nudruk or nudrugin bayan, fist or uh, rich fist. And fist is what kulak means fist. So they took the same uh, terminology. But from 29 to 32, um, it's important to note that there were still uh, remnants of what the socialist termed as feudal economy. There were still some wealthy nobles who owned a great deal of herds and especially a large number of monasteries. Mongolia um, at the time and today is primarily Tibetan-style Buddhist um, in fact, there's been major news in the um, just uh, this past week about the Dalai Lama officially unveiling the new uh, Buddhist incarnation of the 10th Jepsum Dambahutuktu, who was the, um, the previous theocratic ruler before the rise of socialism. The Bhutan was the eighth. Um, and part of becoming the People's Republic of China was declaring no more incarnations of this um, line, but it continued outside of Mongolia and is now back again in Mongolia. Um, So uh, a lot of it had to do with taking wealth away from the wealthy, especially nobles and monasteries, taking herds away from the uh, wealth and monasteries, bringing herders together, and then um, who would then work the herds based on a centralized plan from the government. Um, The government would decide, okay, this year there's going to be this many tens of thousands of new uh, lambs born, uh, this many uh, amount, this many tons of wool uh, collected, this much exported to the Soviet Union. um, And it went down to everything from... um, uh, you know, basic uh, livestock uh, products to how many um, marmot pelts and um, kilograms of marmot fat would be um, harvested. Uh, however, this first collectivization attempt was, um, as in the Soviet Union, created a great deal of suffering and resistance. However, unlike this, and it caused a civil war that the Soviet Union needed to send in forces in 1932. However, unlike the Soviet Union, which pushed through and managed to um, finish collectivization despite these resistance, um, the Mongolian People's Republic put a stop on collectivization um, and said, okay, people can continue to own and herd their livestock. Um, privately, but the oppression of, um, and they tried for a couple of years to officially accommodate and work with uh, the religious institutions until the Stalinist inspired Great Purge killed um, um, a huge number of lamas and other um, um, ethnic minorities and um, uh, dissidents. Um, So there was a period from 1932 to 1956 in the socialist Mongolia where wild nobles and uh, monasteries no longer owned livestock. There was still uh, wealth inequality in the form of uh, wealthy normal herders who would employ as their predecessors, noble and uh, monastic predecessors did, they employed poorer herders um, who would generally have a couple of their own livestock, but mostly work with for these herders who had thousands of livestock. They would have, you know, I have uh, a horse, uh, two cattle and um, 20 sheep, 
and I work for this guy who's a Myungit Malchit. Uh, he has over a thousand head of livestock. Um, and in 1956, um, as part of the post-Stalin, post-Trobel song, uh, the Stalinist, um, Stalin era ruler of Mongolia, after their deaths, um, they decided, okay, uh, we need to officially collectivize in order to build a proper socialist state with a proper five-year plan that is in sync with the Soviet Union and the rest of the socialist bloc. And my dissertation is focused on the four-year period of 1956 to 1960 when these collectives were formed, first uh, through um, uh, promotion and um, uh, convincing herders most uh, of saying, if you join the collective, uh, you'll no longer be poor. No one will be rich. Everyone will be equal. You won't have to worry about um, something bad happening to your livestock. You won't have to worry about diseases. You won't have to worry about uh, disasters. You won't have to worry about wolves. Um, you'll uh, get paid um, and uh, so forth. Um, and a big part of the sort of articulation, going back to your original question of how did Mongolian think, socialist thinkers articulate Marxist, uh, Marxist-Leninist ideology through a historically mobile pastoralist nomadic lens is they said herders are the proletariat, are the working class. And then hunters said there were, uh, I've um, a big part of one of my chapters on my dissertation is on wolf hunting and hunters. And there are a number of hunting handbooks, hunting conferences um, in the same way that there were herding conferences and herding handbooks. And they said, you know, hunters are also part of the proletariat. Um, and throughout Mongolian history, there were two working classes, herders and hunters. Um, and uh, which of course, is not exactly what Marx had in mind, but uh, he also did not have in mind what the sort of uh, peasant agrarian based uh, workers in the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China either. So it was not outside of the realm of possibility to um, innovate for local uh, conditions. But the Mongolian People's Republic and its thinkers didn't have to reckon with settler colonialists who were ultimately the above them. And whereas Boryat thinkers had to say, okay, Russians coming in, the Russian empire was bad, but Russians coming in were good because they brought us forward. But we still had a very complicated sort of level of balancing act that the Mongolian uh, socialist thinkers still had to deal with, but to a lesser extent, it was much easier to say, okay, China and Manchus came in, they conquered us, and they were bad. Um, tradi- uh, her, uh, nobles, Mongolian nobles were bad. Uh, uh, llamas were bad. Uh, but uh, the core working class herders were a... Um, uh, constant throughout Mongolian history. And hunters are usually added on by hunters. Uh, they tend to get less um, attention from the big uh, um, general uh, ideological works, but they were still part of that. Okay. And so maybe we should back up a little bit and talk about um, demographics, because you've touched on um sort of the kind of makes the social makeup um, of Mongolia in this period, right? You've talked about herders, you've talked about hunters, you've talked about farmers, you've talked about uh, religious figures. Can you put some numbers or kind of just like percentages on what percentage of the population was represented by each of those categories? You know, I think what you're getting at is that Mongolia is something of an unusual case, even in this period where I think, I believe, a majority of the population was 
pastoralists, right? Um, but maybe can you just kind of flesh out that picture so people have a maybe better understanding of who exactly Mongolians are in this period, uh, what Mongolians are doing, what the kind of what those numbers are uh, in terms of sort of like societal occupations um, and how those different occupations kind of related to each other. Okay, so that, that's a great point. Thank you. Mongolia's population in 1944, so this is 23 years after the revolution, was uh, 759,200. In 1989, it was uh, 2,044,000. Uh, um, so we see there's this major uh, baby boom uh, that um, from 1956 to 1989, the urban population went from 20 1.6% to 57% um, with uh, um, Ulaanbaatar, the capital, becoming the um, about half of the population um, it, uh, in the um, uh, in the um, living in the city. Um, and so we see this major uh, transformation uh, here. Um, as far as the numbers of uh, working uh, people working herders um, as herders, um, from uh, 1940, uh, the um, uh, her, the countryside economy went from uh, 64 to 15.7% of the um, economy uh, with in, uh, from uh, with industry and mining went from 127 to 49% uh, from the same period of 1940 to 1990. So we see the extractive elements um, were uh, really boomed towards the end of the Mongolian uh, People's Republic. Um, and so do you know um, what the reasons were for this kind of demographic and social shift in the 50s and 60s? Um, why there was this, why there was this baby boom um, and why there was this kind of big shift and push towards urbanization? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. So part of it is it's similar to the reasons of the baby boom in, say, America. Um, but um, a lot of it also had to do with the um, introduction and widespread um, use of uh, what we could say is international modern medicine, scientific medicine. Um, things like um, um, uh, vaccines, uh, major um, uh, um, uh, health um, programs to prevent venereal diseases. Um, they also introduced uh, stove pipes to make the inside of the gear, the, um, uh, the, the, the felt tent, make them less smoky so people just living quarters were better. And there was a huge pronatal um, promotion of uh, heavily rewarding mothers, uh, as there were in the Soviet Union. Mothers would receive um, medals, uh, heroic mother medals, receive stipends based on the number of children that they uh, bore, um, and so forth. Uh, live birth um, uh, were... Uh, had a far more babies were surviving um, at uh, birth and uh, early childhood because of this uh, introduction and spread of um, international scientific medicine. Uh, this introduction started um, in the 20s. Um, uh, the Mongolian um, 
uh, national literary hero, Natsuk Dorge, wrote a couple of poems, uh, one called uh, um, Infectious Diseases about germs and about like washing your hands and not sharing things. Another one called Venereal, about venereal diseases, saying, um, you know, blaming llamas and nobility and the Chinese merchants for uh, spreading these uh, STDs to our uh, poor women and that we need to uh, vaccinate and prevent and practice um, not safe sex, but uh, um, uh, um, sex that was safe, but still resulted in pregnancy, uh, uh, sexual health awareness and so forth. Um, But they, um, in large part because of the extreme turbulence in the 30s and 40s, um, just like with the um, with uh, the hurting economy, sort of uh, took a while to become modernized. So did the human um, introduction of uh, various healthcare initiatives, um, and these healthcare initiatives were paralleled, actually, in um, as I explore in one of my chapters it, it, with uh, livestock, with the introduction of major. Uh, vaccines and um, trained professional corps of veterinarians, um, similar to there was a trained professional corps of doctors. Uh, um, and there were uh, major just healthcare um, promotions. Uh, Ines uh, Stolpe uh, has an article about um, the uh, um, cleanliness campaigns in the 1950s and 60s, where you know people who uh, did not regularly do their laundry would get a uh, pig put on their gear to represent their slovenliness, or and uh, and and so forth. Um, whereas the the people who were good and uh, clean got rewarded and so forth. So there's a a major um, as part of the major modernization uh, socialist modernity campaign, a big part of that was healthcare, um, along with things like education. Mongolia be- got almost a hundred percent literary literacy rates, despite two uh, despite two campaigns to change the uh, the writing system. They still managed to uh, to keep uh, high literacy rates despite the inherent problems of switching in a couple of years of um, writing systems, uh, as well as things like um, industrialization and mining and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, so now that we've gotten to some more basic facts on the table, I wanted to go back to what you were saying earlier um, about these kind of two periods of collectivization. The first, uh, I believe you said 1929 to 32, that sort of failed um, or met with a lot of resistance and then was kind of abandoned. And then the second period, which your research focuses on more in 1956 to 60. So I was hoping you could talk a bit more about kind of the specific reasons that the first period failed, like what the kind of why the resistance, why this resistance occurred um, and why that attempt at collectivization just was not successful um, and then what was different about the second period and I think you kind of touched on those factors already but I was hoping you could just kind of spell out a little more you know more specifically what the differences were between those two periods definitely so um, the uh, 29 to 32 um, it was a failure but I think it's important and my master's thesis I wrote about uh, this and originally in my first proposal for my dissertation also covered 32 uh, uh, 29 to 32 until I realized that would become way more than I uh, had the time and energy to research and write about um, per- one day perhaps but uh, uh, a lot of the resistance was very similar if not the same to that that was found not just over the border in Boryatia and in um, uh, uh, 
places like Kazakhstan and uh, Ukraine and Russia, um, because, uh, you know, lots of people do not like when you say, okay, now you have to give us your stuff. Um, this is especially the case with wealthy people. Uh, um, hot take. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, they, and especially um, uh, the monastic uh, power holders in Mongolia had the political uh, power enough to organize resistance. Um, so both lamas, um, uh, Buddhist monks, I, one time in a conference, I was talking about extermination of llamas, and it was like, why are they trying to kill like llamas? <laughs> and I realized he meant L O A llamas, L O A A M A. Important uh, distinction. Yes, and I was like, there, there's none of those in Mongolia. No. There's related camels, but no. Um, but uh, 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 the uh, the Buddhist uh, power structure was such that they was able to organize enough resistance amongst uh, the um, um, you know, religion is a, a powerful political force, especially since Mongolia, um, uh, you know, just 10 years earlier, it was declared a theocratic nation under a Buddhist incarnate incarnation. And uh, for, for uh, centuries before that, it was still one of the main sources of political power. So, um, they were able to organize and there was constant um, accusations by uh, Mongolians and Soviets that this resistance um, in both Mongolia and in Buryatia and other places was supported by Japan because Japan was expanding uh, through Manchuria into Mongolian lands um, and they had the um, Panchen Lama on their side, the uh, one of the highest um, uh, incarnate lamas. So uh, the, there was a lot of accusation of the Japanese influence, uh, and they did want to uh, incorporate and worked a lot with Mongolian. Um, uh, with Mongolians uh, across the um, sort of boundaries to uh, try and promote their uh, um, imperial uh, agenda. But um, that's a very tricky and controversial topic that not a lot of people have actually like delved into to see how much the Japanese influence really played. Um, and I think that a major difference between the the sort of reason why Mongolian uh, collectivization failed was be, not because of was because of resistance, but there was also resistance in the Soviet Union. You know, millions of people died. Um, there was a lot of armed resistance um, uh, and people fleeing and so forth. The problem. The main difference was the Soviet Union pushed through and declared uh, victory and kept the collectives because they had enough resources and power to do so. Whereas um, after they put down the rebellions in 32 with Soviet help, the Soviet Union, um, Stalin himself uh, sort of said, you should not worry about continuing this collectivization campaign. You, um, it's not worth it. Uh, yeah in large part because Stalin and Soviet leaders mostly saw Mongolia as important as a buffer between the Japanese empire and, and Mongolia being unified and not at war with itself uh, was more important than whether or not they had collectives and <laughs> and their point of view. Um, so in short, uh, but Later, socialist rhetoric said, oh, uh, we pushed too forward. People got too excited. Socialist uh, leaders got too excited and moved forward before herders were ready. Uh, you could say the exact same thing about the Soviet Union. Um, the, so that argument is just sort of a post um, 
sort of failure uh, justification uh, rather than the actual reason why it failed. Um, it, it failed just because they didn't have the political um, um, power, resource, and uh, resources, and um, uh, motivation to keep and follow through with this um, program. Um, so the main and a major difference between twenty nine and 32 and 56 and 60 was that 56 and 60 were peaceful collective, uh, totally peaceful. Now, some scholars and of course, socialist Mongolian uh, thinkers said, this is because Mongolians were ready for socialism. Now they had been properly um, educated and had their eyes open to them. And part of this was true. Part of there were more so supporters of the Mongolian uh, socialist project. But a lot of that had to do with they killed the, ent- all the uh, um, people who had the political willpower and ability to um, resist them. So it wasn't because um, it, it's not accurate to say it was because everyone uh, now was on board. People still tried to resist. They tried to hide their livestock. They sold their livestock before they were forced to join the collective and then moved to the city. Um, there were uh, nonviolent ways that were resisted. And many refused to join until they were forced to join um, by a government decree in 59. Uh, but there was no longer the ability uh, to resist violently as there was before, just because of the huge number of people who were killed. So I'm really curious about just the kind of mechanics and logistics of implementing these kind of transformations of kind of making livestock herding socialist in this context, you know, because so in my research, you know, I work on nomadic peoples um, in the Middle East during the period of British imperialism and the kind of conventional scholarly wisdom when researching um, the, the like transformations like this of nomadism of pastoralists under state authority is that those transformations require really kind of direct and sort of authoritarian manifestations of state power in nomadic landscapes in order to be successful, that the nature of nomadism and of pastoralism sort of requires that because pastoralists move around and they're hard for the state to find. So if the state wants to change nomadic peoples in some way, the state needs to really be present where the nomads are. The state needs to go to the nomads and establish like a direct, solid presence of authority where nomadic peoples are. But I kind of suspect that that is maybe not exactly the case in this context, but I could be wrong. So I'm really just curious how these transformations act, how, what that looked like, you know, what were those kind of mechanisms, what were the organizations and institutions who were implementing these transformations, who were the kind of actors that were involved, if you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and it is uh, gets to a sort of a bigger question of the government role in um, nomads, uh, broadly speaking, and specifically in Mongolia. So I think, so Humphrey and Sneath and their end of nomadism, question mark, it's important. <laughs> One, I, I won't, I, the question mark is important because the, the ultimately the answer is no, it did not end. Um, but uh, they actually argue that pre-revolutionary and socialist herding have more in common than post-socialist uh, democratic herding because they argue both had um, a uh, relative um, control by the government, whether it's a um, 
uh, noble or a um, collective boss with a large number of livestock not personally owned by the herders, but instead by this government. Um, And both had people living in bounded territorial units, what in the, um, from the Mongol imperial period to the Qing period, Chris Atwood calls appanage communities. Um, And these are very similar, I would argue, to the, um, what became collectives, which were, became coterminous with the district. So if you were part of the collective, you had to live in this district. You needed strict, you needed a very hard to get passport to go from one district to another, much less one um, um, uh, province to another. Um, And the way that collectives were formed, uh, there's a lot of really great um, autobiographies and uh, interviews that came out after socialism of, you know, these socialist leaders saying how it was like, yeah, I was 17 in 1929. I joined the youth league and they said, okay, former collective. And I went from camp to camp saying, hi, socialism is here. It's time to form a collective. And it was like, and then old ladies tended to yell at me and tell me to go away. <laughs> and, you know, the, the collective consisted of like two guys who were constantly arguing with each other and me in my uh, red gear, like the culture house, which, uh, where I would have like socialist literature where girls would come out and hang out with me. <laughs> and, you know, and... and this sort of uh, activist um, approach was refined, but not um, perfected by 56 to 60. It was, of course, if you read socialist histories, they say it's a ground up movement. It is. It was not. There was a clear government um, control and it's, Worth noting that by 56 to 60, the Mongolian People's Republic had been in control for 45 years. So um, they had a pretty good handle on preventing people from moving where they didn't want them to move. Um, Unlike earlier periods where people, you know, uh, people from Buryatia were fleeing south into Mongolia, people from Mongolia were fleeing south into Inner Mongolia, um, and so forth. Um, uh, but, and the, the central government uh, first um, created taxes, like tiered taxes, where you got taxed more if you were not part of the collective and had a large number of livestock, and they slowly ratcheted that up until they forced everyone to join the collective. But before that, and still during that, there were um, uh, highly motivated, often youth activists who did go. And a lot of people, you know, I I saw, I've seen um, in the archives, these uh, like loose leaf papers written in pen of people saying like, I um, X and my wife Y, just so uh, hereby join the collective. We have two horses, um, three camels, and uh, uh, 15 sheep. Um, we give them to the collective. Uh, and um, from now on, and we promise to follow all the rules. So you can imagine a lot of poor people were really um, on board with this idea of, hey, I can... Um, remove uncertainty, which is a huge uh, sort of the main threat um, in pastoralism. Uh, and uh, I, I get a community, a lot of post-socialist interviews with members of the collectives were saying like, yeah, you know, every week we had a movie night. We had dances. Now, you know, we no longer have organized fun, <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, community, uh, activities. Uh, and, um, uh, I sort of explain how, how in my dissertation, three of my chapters are sort of the, um, 
elements that went with collectivization, that would be major draws to convince people to join, which were uh, vet, uh, um, international scientific veterinary science, uh, protection from climatic disasters of Zud, winter disaster and um, droughts, and extermination of wolves. Uh, saying you join the uh, collective and we'll protect you. Um, uh, Nicholas Papa, the famous um, Russian uh, Mongolist who uh, ended up joining the Nazis um, and then uh, fled and came to America and helps foreign Mongolian studies in America. Uh, he recorded in 1929 a poem in a Boryat um, collective just over the border from Mongolia saying like uh when the when we join the collective there will be no um oppressive kulaks when we join the collective there will be no more hungry wolves so um so the, there was a def, there was a definite carrot and stick approach of um of joining the collective and i think that it's and in my dissertation i try to give voice to both the above the sort of history from above government policies and history from below people's experience um, that were part of the collective, whether it's through uh, the archives, interviews with them, autobiographies um, and so forth. So uh, it is definitely a, there was a lot of, early uh, resistance um, and part of that came in the fact that you could take up your herds and leave um, but by uh, through um, government sort of control uh, and you know murder of people who did resist um, there was enough uh, to by the 50s able to um, use this carrot and stick approach to um, convince and then force people to join the collectives. Um, and once they were part of the collective, um, I there were not, there wasn't like major people fleeing the border or fleeing from one district to the other. Um, there was more, much more smaller acts of defiance of, oh, this is a collective. Uh, um, sheep uh, it died from wolves and then you get to eat the the meat so and that's part of the reason why the, the collective bosses were so um, had to keep such detailed notes of the death causes of each livestock to prevent people from sort of fudging the numbers uh, um, Caroline Humphrey has a really good study of this in um the Karl Marx Collective in uh, Boreatia is called uh, Carl, uh, Mark, uh, Marx Left But Karl Stayed Behind um, from her time in the 70s in the uh, uh, collectives in Boreatia, uh, her study uh, of them, um, about how it was sort of anticipated that there would be constant skimming on all levels from the collective uh um, cheese, uh, uh, meat, and so forth. And that was just sort of part of the life. But this was not something that is inherent to nomads or Mongolians. You know, the same things where Russian peasants or at this time, Russian collective farmers were doing the exact same sort of uh, uh, thing. It's a, it's a human thing rather than a, uh, than a uh, nomadic thing. And similarly, you know, resistance to collectivization was a human thing rather than a nomadic thing. It's just the the forms, nomadism just allowed greater migration um, as seen in uh, Kazakhstan, where, you know, a million people died from starvation, but also a large number of people migrated to into Xinjiang and uh, into Mongolia. Um to flee from um, that. And part of that was their, f the fact that they had more uh, mobility. Um, yeah, so, so ultimately very much of a um, 
carrot and stick of top and bottom uh, elements of convincing and coercion to get people to join collectives. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time. Um, What transformations occur among livestock herders after socialism? You know, you said the socialist government ends in Mongolia in 1990. What happens after that? You know, what happens to these institutions? What are the kind of reactions um, among herders? Um, is there is it similar? You know, is there kind of a similar economic uh, catastrophe? Basically, is what happens in the former Soviet Union uh, after the end of the communist government? What is what does that look like for the herders specifically? This transition from socialism back to capitalism, if yeah, I can put it, it very kind of superficially. Yeah, no, it, it was a major uh, disruption. Um, collectives uh, by, by the, uh, you know, had existed for uh, around 40 years by the time that they were, uh, this was how people's, her, countryside people's lives were organized. There was um, a lot of infrastructure, everything from, you uh, um, wells, uh, um, uh, 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 shelters, um, veterinary care, um, improved breeds, uh, and um, uh, so forth. Uh, and then um, in uh, a couple of years after uh, the transition to democracy and capitalism, the collectives were disbanded. Livestock was uh parceled out to individual herders or families, um, as were a lot of the old infrastructure. And the problem is, you know, a truck is awesome for herding. Uh, um, But if you're an individual herder, can you afford the high fuel prices of um, the post alone. So a lot of Mongolians who were part of the collective say, you know, things got worse. Um, There's a great interview um, with this one uh, fellow who uh, also, who said, um, uh, you know, he starts off saying like, ah, collectives were terrible. The the boss were always bossing you around. People were scared of the boss and, you know, it was like a prison. And then he's talking, he's like, yeah, you know, my wife and I did well. We got awards. We got lots of money. We, we uh, got uh, 500 liter uh, of milk in one season and got rewarded for that. The real problem today is young people. Young people don't know how to herd. You know what? Young people should be put in a collective. (laughs) And a lot of people, you know, sort of um, lament both the community and the infrastructure loss. Um, Of of course, a lot of uh, socialists and leaders do so, but same with uh, average herders. Um, And now, uh, and this resulted in a great deal less mobility and overgrazing because um, when the, for two reasons, first of all, it's easier to move when you're part of a group and there's enough infrastructure uh, to um, sort of support that. But also nomads are like everyone else. Do I really have to move? It's such a pain in the butt to move a couple of miles during the summer when there's a collective boss or a uh, noble in the previous period saying, you got to move, you move. Now, um, not everyone did. Um, And it's entirely understandable why, especially with more and more like young people moving into the city and not wanting to live a life of a herder. So it's sort of an aging herding population uh, with a, um, uh, with that sort of problem. So there are all these sort of social and um, economic problems that were caused. Now um, there are more and more Mongolians who are joining um, cooperatives that are very similar to the collectives, just without the uh, central state input and um, uh, mandates, but, you know, they pool their uh, 
livestock. They pool their resources to prevent the exact same sort of things that um, um, the socialists tried to prevent uh, um, protection from livestock. Being able to afford a vet, uh, veterinary care really plummeted after the socialist period. Um, uh, the, uh, for example, Rinderpest, a cattle plague, was eliminated by the 1940s in the Mongolian People's Republic. It reappeared in the 90s. Um, and and that's one of the big sort of um, uh, problems, uh, uh, diseases plaguing all, all livestock uh, across the world. Um, so, and unfortunately, not a lot of people have studied these new cooperatives. I hope someday this is a call to listeners. If you're a anthropologist interested in uh, human environmental uh, relations in Mongolia, please study uh, the cooperatives. I have friends who have relatives who work in them. Uh, and, and these sort of things are like, um, again, sort of show the grassroots resiliency of trying to deal with not just sort of the lack of infrastructure, but now the increasing problems due to climate change, land and water loss due to uh, um, mining, uh, desertification due to decreased uh, mobility. People often blame goats. They do so for a unfair degree, I would argue, based on studies that were done in the People's Republic of China that were then used to completely deport herders from their homelands. So, you know, don't take those uncritically is what I'd say. Um, But there are a lot of um, sort of issues that herders are still wrestling with, um, with uh, the... um, uh, how to deal with this sort of individual capitalist economy. Um, while I was in Mongolia, a lot of times Mongolians would say, what do you think? Uh, were collectives better or, or now? And my answer is generally like, I don't ask, I'm not qualified. I did not live. I'm not a herder. I did not live in the collectives. I did not, uh, I don't herd now. Uh I'm more interested in, less interested in what I have to say and more in showing what Mongolians have to say and what the archives and interviews and so forth have to say. And what I would say is that most of the people that I have uh, read and interacted with say that there was a marked um, uh increase of problems with the end of collectives and with the end of socialism. And now the fact that people are working with cooperatives shows that it's uh, pooled resources were and are a very important and um, useful strategy for um, pastoralists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and I that connection that you just drew between the collectives and the cooperative, these new cooperatives kind of replacing them maybe in an informal way, I think is really, is a really interesting insight because I've, I mean, I've read a little bit in other contexts about herding cooperatives kind of starting to pop up in partly in kind of socialist, post-socialist contexts like Tibet, um, but also in the Middle East, in parts of Europe um, to serve exactly the kind of functions that you just identified uh, of kind of providing more economic certainty to herders, protecting against environmental disasters, sort of providing this kind of resilience to climate change and also serving this kind of social and communal function as well, right? Um, Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. Um, So I would echo your call to anyone who's interested uh, to do some more research on that because it's really, uh, really understudied, but I think a kind of growing phenomenon globally um, in nomadic and uh, livestock herding communities. Yeah. Uh, Charlotte Marchena, who was just on, obviously studies um, contemporary Mongolian herding and Buryat herding, but um, 
as far as I remember, was not embedded in like cooperatives necessarily. Right. Yeah. So maybe the next phase of research for some people, hopefully, because <laughs> that would be really interesting for me personally as well. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you so much for joining me and talking about your research. I think this is a really, really interesting context and a really kind of understudied and under understood one. Uh, but I think this concept of how pastoralism worked and was transformed under socialism is really interesting. And I think it's not well researched in the Mongolian context. I think we know quite a bit about it or we sort of how I think the, the narratives of, of pastoralism in the USSR kind of takes precedence. And so these other stories um, and other socialist contacts kind of get lost. So thank you for bringing some light to those and sharing your research with us. Thank you for having me again. Uh, th th it was a great uh, talking with you again about uh, my work. And uh, who knows, uh, hopefully I can be on again in the not too distant future <laughs> if you're not sick of me. <laughs> <laughs> you're always welcome back. <laughs> thank you.